Many, many years ago, as a student at East High, I found myself one morning in an assembly. But out on this empty stage came a tall fellow. He turned and faced the audience and said, Unaccustomed to public speaking as I am. Well, about an hour later, as he was speaking that he was unaccustomed to, I said, Aha! This fellow is going to be a great teacher or a great politician. He moved on to the University of Utah, where he was student body president and graduated in 1957. Twelve years in Washington doing politicking and government work and stuff like that. Twelve years in L.A. working for Howard Hughes. Then back to Salt Lake as CEO of Franklin International, which is now Franklin Cuffey, which is a great teacher of time management. He was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1992. He's in the middle of his second term now. He is married to Joyce McKay, has six children, two of which is twins, Heidi and Heather, were playmates of our audiovisual specialist. Christine Pembroke Cross. And thank you, Chrissy, for all the work you've done. His interest, history, and a burning desire to simplify the U.S. tax code. <laughs> the latter proving to be more difficult than the study of the former. I'm delighted to be here and honored that you'd, uh, you'd ask me here on the occasion of Thanksgiving and to talk about what I'm thankful for and what we should be thankful for. If you will allow me, I'm going to, to develop two separate themes and hope in the end, if you're still awake, to bring them together. So uh, <coughs> I warn you in advance, they will seem to be separate and have no connection, but I'll try to find one at the end of the uh, end of the time. And being a Rotarian myself, I know you leave promptly at 1.30 whether the speaker has finished or not, and I don't want the embarrassment of having you do that on me, so I will finish uh, at the appropriate time. Uh, there are two themes that have been going on in my own life in the uh, last 60 days. One, of course, has to do with the events of the 11th of September, events all around the world, and uh, it's as if I've gone back to school in this period. The Library of Congress has scheduled seminars with experts on Islam. We had one professor who teaches Muslim history at the Sorbonne. He talked about all of the things that have happened there <coughs> in a historic context, went back to Mohammed and took us through that whole history. The Aspen Institute is a group that brings academics and legislators together. They sponsor one breakfast every quarter to talk about major issues. They have been putting on breakfasts twice a week since the 11th of September, and we've had a series of academics from Georgetown, from Johns Hopkins School of International Studies, from CSIS, the Center for Strategic and Inter International Studies. We've had experts on terrorism, 
one on Iran, one on Saudi Arabia, one on Egypt, <coughs> et cetera, et cetera, all the way through. Then the um, classified briefings with the CIA, the FBI, the Department of Defense, the Department of State, and they have their experts. So I go from one seminar to another, from one briefing to another. I kind of have the feeling that the midterm is coming up fairly soon, and I'm going to have to consult all my notes to see where we are. But out of that process has come a picture of the world, and particularly the Muslim world, that I never really had before. And it's very illuminating and helps me understand what has been going on, what has been bringing on the terrorist attack in New York and Washington on the 11th of September, and what we face as we try to deal with it. Let me just outline a few of the things that uh, have come out of this series of seminars that I hadn't really realized before that I think we need to understand. First, I had not realized how unmonolithic the so-called Muslim world really is. It, is. it is shattered, splintered from all kinds of groups. You, you start out with the, the fundamental split between the Sunnis and the Shiites. And frankly, I can't tell you the doctrinal differences, but they are very deep and very strong. And those who study Christian history might find a parallel in the great schism between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church in early Christian times. And that you have the Sunnis and the, and the, the uh, Shiites. And then within each group, there are subgroups. The Saudis, for example, are all Sunnis, but the Saudis are Wahhabi Sunnis, which are different from other kinds of Sunnis. And the war between Iran and Iraq was a war between two competing Muslim countries. Now, the expert from the Sorbonne said, trying to speak to us in a, a context uh, that we might understand, he said, theologically, Islam is Protestant, but intellectually, it is Catholic. And I said, okay, <laughs> help me understand this. And, and we went through it. And he was talking not necessarily in, in uh, true theological terms, but more political terms. Because the Protestant movement did not identify itself originally with a state. You had Presbyterians, you had Baptists, you had Calvinists and Wesleyans and Methodists and so on and so forth. And it was kind of all right to differ on scriptural interpretations in the Protestant world, but you did not have an attempt initially from the Protestant thinkers to create a link between the religion and the state. Whereas in the medieval times, that was not true of the Catholics. The Catholics very firmly had a Catholic state where there was a formal relationship between the head of state and the the head of the religion in that state, the state funded the churches, the church dictated things to the state, vice versa, a very, very close political tie. And he said after Muhammad died, 
Muslim or Islam was Protestant because there were a lot of different groups believing and arguing scripturally a lot of different things. But after maybe 50 years, it began to become Catholic in the sense that nations began to organize around the religion and vice versa. The religion would organize itself to exert power over a country. And so, he said, if you can think of the wars and battles of the Middle Ages between the Inquisition in Catholic states and Protestants who happened to live there, you can begin to understand what has happened in Islam. Then he said, and this I found fascinating, the same thing happened again in the 1940s. Because many Muslim countries had been colonies controlled by the British and the French. They controlled the Muslim countries along the shores of the Mediterranean. And when they pulled back from their colonial status and these nations became free nations, initially Islam in these nations was practiced in a Protestant fashion. But then the state started to enter in and the people who took over the states began to make religious arrangements and you began to see a change in the Muslim doctrine responding to the political initiative of whoever was controlling the state. Now, come from that background to Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden is a Sunni, but he is also a Wahhabi, but he is also a fundamentalist Wahhabi, which puts him really on the fringe of Islam thinking. But that's just the beginning. I had not realized until one scholar said to us as we were, we were there, how racist this world is. He said to us, you look at me and what do you see? Just looking at me, what do you see? You see an American. Yes, I was born in Lebanon. I happen to be a Muslim, but I am a naturalized American citizen, and as such, you accept me as your equal. I am an American. If Osama bin Laden were to walk into a social gathering in Saudi Arabia, simply by looking at him, they would automatically classify him by virtue of his race. He said Osama bin Laden can never reach the upper social classes in Saudi Arabia because he is a Yemeni by birth. And his mother was a Syrian. And that puts him at a certain level in the caste system that is below the top level that is controlled by the royal family. So Osama bin Laden forever and ever is branded by virtue of his birth socially less desirable than certain other people. So you take this religious mixture that I've just described and then put an overlay on top of it of ethnic prejudice and an ethnic mixture. This is the description of Osama bin Laden that has come out of these. He's rich. He's well-educated. Socially, he's middle to upper class. But ethnically, he can never get into the top rank 
no matter how successful he may be. Searching for a thing to do that would bring meaning into his life, he went to Afghanistan when the fight was mounted against the Soviet Union. And there became part of a warrior culture that has existed in Afghanistan for a generation. There is a whole generation of young men in Afghanistan who have never done anything but fight. They have no other profession. They have no other skills. All they do is fight. And Osama bin Laden got caught up in that. When the Soviet Union was expelled from Afghanistan, these people, in Thane Robeson terms, joined the ranks of the unemployed. So they started fighting with each other. Because that's all they knew what to do. And Osama bin Laden wants to get involved in this, but religiously he becomes horrified at the fact that the United States, the infidel, is grounded in Saudi Arabia, the land of the holy places. The aftermath of the Gulf War, the Americans have built an air base in Saudi Arabia building on the emergency air base they put in there so that they can mount operations into Iraq during the war. And Osama bin Laden finds this offensive in the extreme. They are polluting the holy places. And he starts to agitate against the House of Saud. That is, he wants to bring down the government in his own country on the grounds that they are religiously violating the true gospel. And the Saudis react, as dictatorships always do. They went after it. And he fled virtually for his life. He went to Sudan. And there, he found fellowship with a group whose background is almost identical to his but they came out of Egypt. Their goal was to establish their version of a religious state in Egypt. And dictatorships always react the same way, and Mubarak and his government threw these people out of Egypt. One of the fellows that uh, bin Laden was involved with was complicit in the assassination of Sadat and the attempted assassination of Mubarak. So Mubarak did not take kindly to their being in Egyptian, on Egyptian soil. So bin Laden, the Saudi, and Zawahiri, the Egyptian, and their followers came together in the Sudan and created Al-Qaeda, the Arab phrase that means the base. And they recruited people of like mind around the world. Interestingly enough, however much they may have been recruited from the Muslim world, they assembled in the West. Because the West is the only place where they had the freedoms necessary to move around and organize. The attack on the World Trade Center was organized, conceived, coordinated, and run from Hamburg, Germany because they were free to operate. Mohammed Atta, 
the Egyptian who led the effort in the United States, had been living in the United States for three years prior to the attack on the World Trade Center. He had integrated outwardly into American society. We now know that he and his fellow hijackers stayed at the Comfort Inn the night before the attack. They ate at Domino's Pizza and they went to Walmart where we believe they purchased the box cutters that they used in the hijack. Thoroughly Americanized outwardly but completely radicalized inwardly you look at the list of the hijackers and you find there is not a Palestinian on there. They are Egyptians and Saudis with one Lebanese thrown in. They have lived in the West because their own culture has rejected them, not just intellectually but physically. And it was only in the West that they found the freedom of movement that allowed them to operate. Finally, what government there was in Sudan said we cannot harbor bin Laden and Zawahiri and their, their type anymore and bin Laden fled to Afghanistan. There is a clear pattern here. They can only go where there is what the political scientists call a failed state. That is a nation where there is no truly functioning government, where you are in a political jungle. And anarchy is the rule. When he showed up in Afghanistan, bringing all of his money as well as his organization, he became the funding background of the Taliban government there. And he felt very comfortable because they had the same vision of Islam that he did, that Islam should take over the state, it should use state power to enforce its views, and any dissenting views should be put down with force if necessary. And so the, the suffocating blanket of Taliban rule settled over Afghanistan and began to agitate towards taking over Pakistan in due time. And this was the only country that would harbor him. All right, I, I won't go further with this theme. I want to get to my other theme in just a moment. But this is the picture, ultimately, that emerges. Bin Laden's primary goal is to topple the House of Saud. Zawahiri's primary goal is to destroy Mubarak. Why are they attacking the United States? Because they believe that the only thing that is holding up the royal family in Saudi Arabia or President Mubarak in Egypt is American support. And if they can drive the Americans out of the Middle East, then those nations where the holy places are will fall to bin Laden. And his ultimate goal is to reestablish the caliphate that goes back to the 10th, 11th, 12th century when Islam and the nations associated with Islam ruled from Spain to the eastern borders of India. He believes that if he can drive the Americans out of the Middle East as he and his other fighters drove the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan, 
these states will fall to his control and he will achieve his goal. Once achieved, he will not stop there. He will then try to take over the non-Arab Muslim lands, Turkey, Bosnia, Indonesia. It's been a fascinating kind of thing. All right, just put that on the side for just a moment and come with me to my second theme. I read a lot in my job, most of it at 30,000 feet. And I have been in the last little while in the, uh, in the world surrounding the founding of America. I've read Benjamin Franklin, The First American, by Dr. Brands. I've read Thomas Jefferson, American Sphinx, by Joseph Ellis. I've read The Founding Brothers, also by Joseph Ellis. I've read The Rise and Fall of Alexander Hamilton. I've kind of been wallowing in this period of time. And out of it, with a lecture by a man named Oz Guinness, who's helped me put it all together, I have formed a picture of the revolutionary times that I hope a little more sophisticated and focused than the one that I had when Bob Pembroke and I were at East High School listening to Mrs. Whitcomb. You, did you ever take Mrs. Whitcomb? You remember how she would point that bony finger at you and say, Bob, pay attention. In two years, your vote will count as much as mine. And that was always terrifying <laughs> to think that we, we should be expected to know as much as a voter as Mrs. Whitcomb did. These people who founded our country, and I love Ellis's phrase, founding brothers. I think, frankly, that's, that's a, a more descriptive phrase than founding fathers. At one time or another, every one of them hated all the others. Um, nobody did more to undercut George Washington's reputation than Thomas Jefferson. Uh, nobody did more to uh, destroy John Adams' reputation than Thomas Jefferson. Nobody did more to hide what he was doing than Thomas Jefferson because he did it all when he could through his lieutenant, James Madison. But when the Constitution came along, James Madison responded to Jefferson's written instructions from France by telling him to butt out. And Madison made an alliance with Jefferson's most hated enemy, Alexander Hamilton. So there was a temporary alliance. Nobody did more in getting independence than Adams and Jefferson, who would then, years later, fight the dirtiest, nastiest presidential campaign in our history, with both of them calling each other unspeakable kinds of names and hating each other for decades afterwards until Benjamin Rush went to Adams and said, you know, Thomas Jefferson really, really admires you and would like to hear from you. Why don't you write him a letter? At the same time, Benjamin Rush went to Jefferson and said, you know, John Adams really, really admires you and would like to hear from you. Why don't you write him a letter? And thus began the great correspondence between these two old friends who had been so close, who had been such antagonists, 
and ended up, fortunately, with their lives as friends again. And so on. Well, I have come to the conclusion, if I were to have to rank the founding brothers in terms of their impact and importance, I would put very clearly George Washington at the top, the absolutely essential, pivotal American, without whom we could not ever have had a nation. And behind him, I would put Benjamin Franklin as number two. Because as Washington won the war here, Franklin won the war in Europe. And without his diplomacy with the French and the French financing, we would not have survived. And be below those two, it's kind of pick them as to how you rank them. But the top six with whom we could not have made it after Washington and Franklin, you have Adams, Madison, Hamilton, Jefferson. We simply could not have done it. Because looking back at it, there are three essential requirements for the nation. And coming back to my first theme, as I look out at the state of the world today, I say these three historic requirements are still there. And the question we have is how can we duplicate what happened in America now in the rest of the world? The three are these. First, you have to win your freedom. And that usually means a war. And quite frankly, that is the easiest of the three. That's why I put Washington first, because Washington won the war. I love Brookheiser's comment about Washington. He says, military historians are hung up with classy losers like Lee and Napoleon. And they look down their nose at Washington, who won. Washington understood the strategic fact that historic military objectives didn't make sense in the United States that the British could occupy Boston. They could blockade New York and Charleston, but until they destroyed the Continental Army, they would not have won. And Washington's great military contribution was to keep the army viable until the British wore out. And the historian said, he never fought. He kept moving it around. Yes, he did, because he knew exactly what he was doing, and he kept moving it around and avoiding fights until he caught the British at Yorktown where he could win the fight and end the war. We would not have won our freedom without the military genius of George Washington. But that's the easiest part. The second challenge is ordering the freedom. The French couldn't do that. The French Revolution, with which Thomas Jefferson was so enamored, won the freedom from the king and the aristocracy and then went into a period of anarchy. And we had the Constitutional Convention that ordered our freedom. And you know the president of that convention was George Washington. And sitting there helping work it all out in the compromise behind the scenes was Benjamin Franklin. Is one of the reasons I put Franklin second to Washington is because they both helped win the freedom and they both helped order the freedom. And then comes the third and hardest part, which is preserving the freedom. And once again, the preservation of our freedom 
in the form of an effective government was dependent upon the effectiveness of the first precedent-setting administration. And who was our first president? Who framed all of the precedents of that administration, many of which we are still preserving over two centuries later? It was George Washington. Franklin had passed by then. Franklin was a commentator on the side. Madison, Hamilton, you say Madison was the father of the Constitution. If so, Hamilton was the midwife. They were involved heavily in the preserving of the freedom as they moved that administration forward. And then Thomas Jefferson, in his first term, presiding over one of the most brilliant administrations in our history, helping preserve the freedom. Those are the three challenges. Bring these two together, and let me tell you what I am grateful for. I am grateful for Washington, Franklin, Adams, Madison, Hamilton, and Jefferson, because not only did they win our freedom, they ordered it and then set us on the road towards preserving it. This is the challenge that we have in the world. Where are the George Washingtons of the Middle East? We've had some who may have emerged in that circumstance, and they have been cut down. The most impressive figure I have ever met in the Middle East was Yitzhak Rabin. Cut down, assassinated. Sadat indicated that he was willing to reach out, assassinated. Somehow, America, if we are to be the true revolutionaries that will establish freedom throughout this part of the world as we did here, as we did at the end of the Second World War in Japan, America must somehow find allies in that part of the world who will play the role of Washington, Franklin, Adams, Madison, Hamilton, and Jefferson. It will be relatively easy for us to win the military side of this war. It will be tremendously challenging for us to win the ordering and the preserving of the freedom that that war will bring to the people in the world. It is a challenge worthy of Americans. What am I grateful for? As these two themes come together, it's the popular song. I'm proud to be an American. Glad to know I'm free. I'm grateful to live in a land that is the legacy of Washington, Franklin, Adams, Madison, Hamilton, and Jefferson. Thank you very much.